Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of highlights from this week's print edition. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and on the menu we have Asia's floundering fertility rates, how to invest like the Amish, and why arachnophobes shouldn't look up. But first, Editing Humanity was our cover line. A new technique for manipulating genes holds great promise, but the development has reignited a fierce debate. The technology is known as CRISPR. It involves a piece of RNA, a chemical messenger, designed to target a section of DNA and an enzyme called a nuclease that can snip unwanted genes out and paste new ones in. So simple, speedy and precise. Researchers are now turning to the technology to develop therapies for a wide range of ailments, from Alzheimer's to HIV. The focus hasn't solely been on already existing humans, though. In April, scientists in China revealed they had tried using CRISPR to edit the genomes of human embryos. Now there's an experiment that evokes both awe and anxiety. Many scientists, including one of CRISPR's inventors, want a moratorium on editing germline cells, those that give rise to subsequent generations. Our leader considered both the practical and moral aspects of the development. As well as cutting the intended DNA, CRISPR often finds targets elsewhere too. In the laboratory, that may not matter. In people, it could cause grave harm. Moreover, awash though it is with gene sequence data, biology still has a tenuous grip on the origins of almost all the interesting and complex traits in humanity. Very few are likely to be easily enhanced with a quick cut and paste. But what of the big ethical dilemma, interfering so profoundly with nature? There are those who will oppose CRISPR because it lets humans play God. But medicine routinely intervenes in the natural order of things, saving people from infections and parasites, say. While science and society consider the ethics of editing humans, elsewhere the discussion is about how to make more of us. Our Banyan columnist, writing in the Asia section this week, explored the demographic crisis brewing in the East. Three quarters of all the people in countries with exceptionally low fertility live in East and Southeast Asia. Tradition seems to be a sticking point. Until recently, Japanese women were expected to give up work on having children. Working or not, Japanese and South Korean women do at least three more hours of housework a day than their men. Such cultural lags are associated with ultra-low fertility because if you force women to choose between family and career, then many will choose their career. Europe faced a similar situation in the early 20th century, but things improved, well, eventually. Social norms began to shift in the 1960s and have changed more rapidly in the past 20 years. Men started to help with the laundry and the school run. Women, therefore, found it easier to have both a career and rugrats. 
and shifting demographics affect the laws of supply and demand of the humankind. By some estimates, by 2070 in some Asian countries, there will be 160 men seeking a wife for every 100 women seeking a husband. Men will have to compete much harder if they want to attract a mate. So even if it's just for pragmatic reasons, our columnist was optimistic that changes would come. With more supportive husbands, women will find it easier to combine motherhood and career, so they will have more babies. Asian culture will adapt to reality, just like any other. Transforming traditions was a theme that carried over into our Europe section this week. Spain and bulls go together like Manchego and Rioja, but the noble image of cape-waving matadors is becoming tainted in the age of austerity. Whether romantic or revolting, Spain conjures up visions of fearless, sequined, cape-waving fighters dancing around half-ton bulls and sinking swords into their necks. In truth, many bullfights are shoestring affairs. The animals mostly provide entertainment at village fiestas, chasing the brave and the foolish down the streets or around makeshift rings. All are amateurs, and a few are drunk. Vicente Royuela, an economist at the University of Barcelona, says these events are much cheaper to organise, making them easier for town halls to fund. While such fiestas thrive, serious bullfighting, however, is in a sorry state. The number of quality bullfights has halved since 2007. The highest category in which renowned matadors kill fully grown animals has fallen from 953 to 398 annual fights. The death toll is still reasonably high, however. Nine people were gored to death by bulls this summer alone. Everything from alcohol to camera phones have been blamed for the surge in deaths. An unproven theory also suggests that as serious bullfights decline, ranchers are providing bigger, deadlier beasts for the popular fiestas. The bullish have traditionally done well in the workplace, but diligence might not matter quite so much in the face of the digital revolution. As an article in our business section described, in the car industry, the middleman is being muscled out of the market. Customers are using the internet for much of the process of choosing a new car. Some car makers are seeking ways to bypass dealers too. And car dealers may not be much missed. Surveys show that car buyers find the experience of visiting a dealer boring, confrontational and bureaucratic. We looked at why the role of the traditional sales approach is waning. The motor industry has spent more than a century training buyers to expect haggling, followed by discounts. Yet customers say having to argue about the price is one of the things that puts them off dealers. And could the death of the car salesman rev up the automobile industry? Many manufacturers have got into the bad habit of overproducing and of using dealers' forecourts as dumping grounds for their excess stock. If cars were sold directly by the maker and production were constantly tailored to match sales, the industry's fortunes could be transformed. A bird in the hand is always a good deal. And an article in our finance section analysed a rather niche form of banking emerging from the plains of Pennsylvania. Since opening in 2013, Bank of Bird in Hand has never had to write off a loan. And that's because the bank's main clientele, the local Amish community, have each other's backs. In some cases, more experienced farmers have been known to convince a borrower that his farm is not viable and encourage him to sell the property and use the proceeds to repay the loan. 
The bank manager, Bill O'Brien, has been lending to farmers in the area for over a quarter of a century. He's so well known that most call him directly from a communal phone shanty when they need a loan. Others prefer to use the bank's drive through window, large enough for a horse and carriage. What the farmers lack in credit history, they make up for in reliability, says Mr O'Brien. It helps, he says, that his clients believe that when they don't pay their bills on time, it's like stealing. Our books section, meanwhile, reviewed Neurotribes by journalist Steve Silverman, which looked at how psychologists first advanced the concept of autism. The chief protagonists in this story are Hans Asperger, he of the syndrome, and Leo Kanner, who is widely credited with the invention of autism in a paper published in 1943. Kanner, in particular, insisted his discovery was new and rare, but it was neither. That bit of vanity might have been more forgivable had he not also speculated, on flimsy evidence, that the parents of autistic children were unusually cold. Time magazine ran a story headlined Frosted Children about these diaper-age schizoids. The slur on refrigerator mothers took decades to fade. Much of the subsequent history of autism has been about recovering from Canner's mistakes. In his defence, Canner never used a cattle prod, unlike some other doctors trying to treat autistic children. Many vaunted cures for autism, however, remain dubious. Most treatments for autism still inhabit the realm of chelation, supplements, strange diets and other junky science. Whatever the future of autism, though, Mr Silberman has surely written the definitive book about its past. Moving on to our final story now, and our science section explained why ecologist Steve Janowiak and his colleague are studying the gliding habits of a species of spiders called selenops. As they report in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface, they collected 59 specimens of selenops, covered them with orange powder to make them easily visible as they fell, and then dropped them from treetops and videoed their falls. Strange things to do in a working day. They did this to other invertebrates like scorpions too, but only the selenops safely manoeuvred through the air. First, regardless of its orientation when shaken out of the box it was being kept in, each spider rapidly righted itself and spread its legs so that its body acted as a parachute. Geronimo! It then used its forelegs as rudders to guide it through the air until it reached the tree it was aiming at. Arachnids, prepare for landing. Why, of all the spiders Dr Yanoviak has tossed out of trees, only selenops can do this, is mysterious. But if he is right, and gliding was the precursor to flying among insects, then arachnophobes can thank their stars other spiders have not followed suit and then gone on to evolve wings. Well, I'm gently gliding off for now. That was Tasting Menu with me, Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.